Right, hi there. Um, we're listening to this shitty ass deposition. A great movement, and there's never been anything like this in the United States. And the only way they figure they can slow it down is to come up with people that are willing to say, Oh, I was with Donald Trump in 1980. Nothing changed. I was sitting with him on an airplane. And he went after me on the plane. Yeah, I'm going to go out. Believe me, she would not be my first choice, that I can tell you. Man. You don't know. That would not be my first choice. When you said in that video that Ms. Mm. Leeds would not be your first papers with Ivana. Still my comfort, my means struggle. It's the only thing he reads for pleasure. It's on his bedside night table. Choice. You were referring to her physical looks, correct? Just the overall. Not. I, I look at her. I see her. I hear what she says. Whatever. You wouldn't be a choice of mine either, to be honest with you. I hope you're not insulted. I would not, under any circumstances, have any interest in you. I'm, being, I'm honest when I say it. Uh, she, I would not have any interest in. The video we just watched. You talk about you suck all the way up, rapist. What else did you know about Miss Leeds that would indicate to you that she was, would not have been your first choice? Other than how she looked. I don't know. I think I probably saw her on television or something. Uh, but I don't want to be insulting. But when people accuse me of something, I think I have a right to be insulting because they're insulting me. They're doing the ultimate insult. They make up stories and then... not allowed to speak my mind. No, I, I disagree with that. No, she would not have uh, been anywhere on a list. I just just wouldn't have been for me. It's no. disgusting. It's what she said was disgusting. Can you imagine doing that on an airplane? What she said? I'm doing that on an airplane. That's almost... as ridiculous as doing it in Bergdorf Goodman in a dressing room. Isn't it true that just a few minutes ago you couldn't remember the date of your engagement to your current wife, Melania? No, no, no. We're talking about a different thing. We're talking about a woman where something happened that was inappropriate, right? Inappropriate. It's highly inappropriate. She would remember that date. I would imagine she would have complained to the airline. She would know the flight. She would know everything about it. 
she didn't even know the year, as I remember it, just like your client doesn't know the year, doesn't know anything about it. If something happened like that to your client, your client would know the second, should know down to the second, should know the day, the month, the year, right down to the second. In the last paragraph of the statement that you made, on that appears in Adrian Fontes, dismantle the right second. I taught Marines how to shoot. Why is that important? Because I think there's a lot of people. Adrian Fontes here, Democrat running for Arizona Secretary of State, and I was a marksmanship instructor in the Marine Corps. I taught Marines how to shoot. Why is that important? Because I think there's a lot of people who don't understand what the Second Amendment actually means in context of the whole Constitution, right? Right. The confusion is I can just be a militia by myself and a well-regulated militia just means what I want it to mean. That's not true. It's 100 percent not true. And I'm going to use this copy of the Constitution that the League of Women Voters gave me to show you why. Here's what the Second Amendment says. It's really easy. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of the free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And everybody always says, oh, well, that's great. Well, what does militia mean? What does this mean? What does that mean? Well, guess what? Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15 and 16. Here's what a militia is. For those of you especially part of the fetishizing gun weapons kind of crowd, here's what it means. Congress shall have the power to call forth the militia, execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections and repel invasions. The militia, in the context of our Constitution, is enforcing the laws of the Union. They work for the government, not against some tyrannical fantasy government that you guys are fetishizing against. That's not what it's supposed to. It says so right here. It also says that the Congress shall have the power to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia. That means you get your militia arms from the government. You don't buy them yourself. That's what the Constitution says. Then it goes on to say, and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the states respectively appointment of officers. So it's a whole unit. There's discipline. There's They arm it. It's organized under Congress's rules, reserving to the states the appointment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. Congress provides the rules for the militia. Congress provides the arms for the militia. Congress calls up the militia. You don't just get to be a militia on your own. And if you look carefully at Heller, you can see that Scalia hedged in his free-for-all opinion. It is not a free-for-all. He hedged. He put just the right hedge in there because he knew that giving everybody a right to have any weapon they want is wrong. But why am I passionate about this? Why do I know about this? Not just because I'm running for Secretary of State and ran an election in Maricopa County, right here in Arizona, but because back when I was in Yuma as an active duty Marine, I was a marksmanship instructor. Digging through some stuff, I found this manual that I used to use, this giant thick manual that Marines use to train each other on how to fire weapons. And look at this thing. This is what we had to teach Marines. It's a two-week course. Marines have to go through this every single year to be qualified to shoot with the with the with the M16A2 service rifle, which is like the AR-15. But an 18-year-old in the United States of America, an 18-year-old doesn't have to go through any of that training. Can go grab an AR-15 and do damage like they've done, and murder kids in classrooms like they've done, like they continue to do. Uh.
It's, it's crazy. You know, and when it comes down to it, sure, some of the Democrats have a little blame, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. but what about the Republicans like Ted Cruz that are out there blaming doors? What about all of the Republicans blaming who are not standing up doing what their constituents want them to do in their own red states? The kind of regulation that we're talking about, universal background checks, Banning assault weapons. These are all very, very popular. And none of the Republicans are backing any of that stuff. So you can go out there and say, oh, these two Democrats, it's all of the Republicans. They the all NRA need to get on board quiet. and do what the American public wants them to do. No, doing what the NRA wants them to do. Adrian Fontes, I'm running for Secretary of State in Arizona. And this Democrat is not going to go quietly into the night. We're going to fight and we're going to win. Everybody, Adrian Fontes here, Democrat running for Arizona Secretary of State, and I was a marksmanship instructor in the Marine Corps. I taught Marines how to shoot. Why is that important? Because I think there's a lot of people who don't understand what the Second Amendment actually means in context of the whole Constitution, right? Right, the confusion is I can just be a militia by myself and a well-regulated militia just means what I want it to mean. That's not true. It's 100% not true. And I'm going to use this copy of the Constitution that the League of Women Voters... And everybody always says... They arm it. It's organized under Congress's rules, reserving to the states deployment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. Congress provides the rules for the militia. Congress provides the arms for the militia. Congress calls up the militia. You don't just get to be a militia on your own. And if you look carefully at Heller, you can see that Scalia hedged in his free-for-all opinion. It is not a free-for-all. He hedged. He put just the right hedge in there because he knew that giving everybody a right to have any weapon they want is wrong. But why am I passionate about this? Why do I know about this? Not just because I'm running for Secretary of State and ran an election in Maricopa County, right here in Arizona, but because back when I was in Yuma as an active duty Marine, I was a marksmanship instructor. Last paragraph where? 
DJ T20. Um, you say as follows. The world should know what's really going on. It is a disgrace, and people should pay dearly for such false accusations. They almost go. And the person you met who should pay dearly for such false accusations was E. Jean Carroll, correct? Yeah, and I think the attorneys, too. I think the attorneys, like you, are uh, a big part of it. Because you know it's a phony case. Well, thank you for watching the full videotaped deposition of Donald Trump. As I said at the outset, what you just saw is exactly what the jury saw. We wanted to provide it to you without any edits so you could see exactly what they saw. Remember, put in the comments below what you thought about that deposition. Make sure you subscribe to the Midas Touch YouTube channel. Check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. And wherever you listen to audio podcasts, Make sure you subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast. Thank you so much for watching this. Now hit subscribe on the YouTube channel. Have a great day. At Midas Touch, we are unapologetically pro-democracy, and we demand justice and accountability. That's why we're spreading our message to... Everybody, Adrian Fault is here, Democrat running for Arizona Secretary of State. Convict 45. That's right. Gear up right now with your Convict 45 tees and pins at store.midastouch.com. That's store.midastouch.com. They should be live right now. Weekend show. Stream 17 minutes. Trump's next dangerous moves finally exposed by top experts. She warns of what's to come. Uh... It's Sunday, May 7, 2023. I'm Anthony Davis. Welcome to The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. You can support my work and get exclusive access to bonus content at patreon.com slash 5-Minute News. Joining us today is Dr. Jennifer All Machia, my stuff is free, man. professor at the Department of Communication and Journalism at uh, Texas A&M Not University, and author of the award-winning book, for Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. Huh. Jennifer, welcome back to The Weekend Show. It's my pleasure. How are you? Yeah. Good, thank you. Uh, like we last spoke around five months ago, I think it was, and quite a lot has happened since then and so yeah. we're going to try and tackle some of the the issues that uh, people are facing this week we're going to look at the debt ceiling in just a little while because that's obviously something that is you know the the, the u.s economy is on the cusp of crashing my taste. so we're going to take a look at uh, take a look at that 
Uh, I also want to look at uh, Donald Trump's potential appearance Chillax, on British CNN uh, with, uh, you know, in a, in a, an interview with Caitlin Collins, which uh, yeah. is an interesting decision. Uh, but first, I want to talk about um, everybody's favorite news anchor, uh, Tucker Carlson. Uh, just over a week ago that um, Fox News agreed to pay out $787 million in this legal settlement and, and fired, fired its most popular host. <laughs> so date. With the 2024 election essentially underway already, the uh, you know, right-wing Fox News now has to wrestle with how to hold on to its audience that Tucker Carlson had. He was the most popular... Uh, I say host, but I don't know what he is. My popular liar. Commentator. <laughs> right we laugh, but it's head. not a funny situation, funny is it? In fact, it is probably the most dangerous thing that has happened to the U.S. Some say that Tucker Carlson has actually been more of a poison on, on, on United States culture than Donald Trump Fuck. himself. He's getting off easy. Let's just talk first about the, the, the Tucker Carlson effect. I mean, how, how serious and how bad is this? Well, uh, it depends on who you are. Um, so for the right wing media ecosystem, um, losing Tucker Carlson is a big problem. Um, Republicans trusted Tucker more than they trusted Fox News uh, in general or any other source of news or information. And so if you're um, counting on having Tucker's voice to be able to convey the information that you want to your audience, um, you know, you're pretty bummed out about the fact that Tucker is gone. Uh, I think for the rest of us, it's not maybe a different story. Because people were addicted to him in a way. I mean, it was, it's almost as if they maybe know that it's sensationalist, but it's delicious. You know, it's they like, like to be lied like to. A, a kind of, it's a, it's a deadly sin that they could not said. let go of. That's right. Tucker Carlson has produced a show that takes all of our worst traits and spins them into a new formula. So he is able to take advantage of in-group, out-group affiliation, us versus them. Um, he tells us routinely, he tells his audience um, that only he has the secret information and you can't trust anyone but him. Um, so very much Just keeping like people's Trump. curiosity through conspiracy. Um, Language you know, of fascism. Did a service for white nationalists and write about you know, people like Alex Jones on Infowars, which was to mainstream, normalize, um, use a process called narrative laundering at their talking point, so that you know people were constantly getting this new information that they had never heard before, no one had ever told them before, delivered from a guy who used every trick in the book to keep them on the edge of their seats to, um, you know, create the fight, flight, and flee response in them, uh, freeze response, so that, you know, their adrenaline is pumping, uh, you know, they have cortisol going through their brain, and, you know, they feel that addiction. They feel that, like, oh, no one's telling me this. I feel so good and bad at the same time whenever I watch Tucker Carlson, um, you know, and, and nobody else can do that for me. And so, yeah, I mean, I think the audience... Um, is feeling that lack right now. It's interesting that certainly with, from where I'm from, if you are a liar and you're peddling garbage material and all that kind of stuff, you'd normally like well, not be a very know? good host. Like you would lack the skills to present that. But in America, presentation skills are 
from where I come from, like a very natural part of, of the American uh, culture and psyche. You know, audiences are very professional audiences. They can holler and cheer and whoop in all the right places and laugh in the right places. And in the same way, hosts, no matter how awful the material they're peddling, they manage to do it in a way that is succinct and professional and, and, and polished and with panache. And the best part of the problem is that it's done in such a legitimate way that that in itself is part of how people become brainwashed. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's been a long time since uh, got the book, The Society of the Spectacle, from Guy Debord. Um, you know, it's been a long time since we learned about the image event and the way that media can create reality and package it for us. Um, you know, this is generations now <laughs> of Americans who have learned how to expect reality to be presented to them in a very specific way. Um, and who have learned that, you know, reality is constructed through these image events. Um, one of the things that I was really fascinated by um, during Donald Trump's presidency was that for some reason that I haven't figured out yet, um, the White House uh, photographers and press corps always wanted to show Donald Trump um, in spectacle res, right? Like they, they wanted to show him from outside of the image event so that he would be in the center surrounded by cameras and microphones. And, you know, in the modern era would be shown from inside that from, right, from inside the image event. So yeah, that it just appeared as though when the president were naturally speaking. The wall. And you wouldn't get to see the whole apparatus of the media in between. Yeah, he didn't allow the um, um, White House You, you used to would, would think that that would be a bad shot. But for somehow, <laughs> somehow for Trump, um, it was the way to show him. Um, and, and I always saw him as, you know, a demagogue of the spectacle. Um, but, you know, they really amplified that. You know, he's this celebrity politician guy. Um, and I think that that goes back to your point, that we sort of expect that. We always talk about that kind of golden ele uh, escalator, don't they? When yeah. they kind of came down to uh, assume the, the role of the, of the, of the presidency. And, you know... It was just an escalator. <laughs> it was just, yeah. just an escalator. It wasn't anything special about it. It wasn't like, you know, I don't know, it wasn't like a, a roll doll moment where the elevator broke through the glass ceiling and, and started flying around the city. I mean, it was just, it was just coming down the escalator. But that is a perfect kind of example of how he has taken you know, gold and... and the, 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 the myth of this Trump Tower foyer and turned it into some kind of magical space and a, and a moment in American history Good. when it was just someone coming down there. an escalator like you might do in the mall any, any regular day. Yeah. Have you ever been in Trump Tower? I have not. I mean, I've seen it from the outside. I've walked by it, but I, I haven't had the confidence to go indoors. I like the walk. So I hadn't either. And I wrote, um, actually, the opening scene of my book is him coming down this escalator. And so, you know, I did what everyone probably does. You know, I, I read lots of descriptions of Trump Tower, of this foyer, um, of the escalator. I looked at lots of pictures and I wrote up this whole, you know, thing. And then I went to Trump, Trump Tower. It's tiny. 
the small little disappointing space. It was empty. There were no businesses there. The only people there were uh, the guy who was selling tchotchkes and Trump, you know, branded items. And I thought, man, he got me again. <laughs> right? But this, so, is, this is the confidence trick that Tucker Carlson yeah. employs as well. And it's yeah. this kind of faux outrage. And it's, it's, you know, it's a bit like, you know, creating the, the, the myth of something going on at the southern border that is far greater than it really is. Caravan. And, you know, they, the, the constant repetition of the southern border, of the southern border. You know, why hasn't Biden gone there? Why hasn't Kamala Harris gone there? It's like, <laughs> it's very much like, like you know, the, the, the Wizard of Oz, right? The pulling back of the curtain and you actually see that it's not about the southern border at all. You know, this it's, it's about who is making it seem like the crisis is far greater than it is. I'm not, I don't want to kind of devalue the, the immigration issue, because of course every country has problems with its border, but they are using it for electioneering purposes, and therefore they are weaponizing the language of the southern border. Absolutely. One of the things that I try to explain to my students is the importance of media framing. And the way that you can talk about a story like the border, um, and you know, of course, we know about the agenda-setting function of the media tells us what stories are important. BBC One, uh, BBC but the way two. that framing works within uh, or with agenda-setting is really important. So if you hear that story repeatedly, and you hear about an invasion, the border, right? Versus if you hear that story and you hear that it's a humanitarian crisis. Um, you know, it, oh. those different frames compete for how we understand reality. And if you pay attention to, you know, Fox News, Tucker Carlson, it's always going to be an invasion. Um, and there's no policy debate that can occur between those two frames. Because if it's already an invasion, <laughs> right, that implies very specific policy consequences. Right, that means we need an army. That means, you know, it's about national security. Right? Um, using where, biblical words like swarm, yeah. those types of things really cause a reaction in people, don't they? Yeah, and if you think about it, you know, it's very obvious what ha is happening. But most people, of course, don't think about it, right? They, they hear the news and they receive the information. The frames are implanted. They become sticky. And you never question them because you don't have that meta, you know, communication perspective that someone like me would have because I am obsessed with that kind of thing. Um, and so it's very insidious how an entire like policy can be um, implanted in your brain <laughs> without you even realizing it, just based on how uh, an issue is framed. With this Dominion voting systems uh, case, which is settled out, of course, we heard with the $787 million um, payout, a lot of people in the industry are thinking, well, how does Fox even have that much? You know, but apparently they do. They've got um, $5 billion. A lot of Ready text messages hand. And buy and video evidence now is starting to come out. Uh, it's being released by um, Media Matters probably, and ProPublica. Various, various organizations are kind of releasing some off. of this stuff. And it's really exposed Tucker Carlson as the, the racist and the white nationalist and the misogynist off-screen as well as on-screen. Because that was the bit that I struggled with. I was like, well, is this an act? Like, is he putting this on? Because it's all about ratings and box office and... Because, you know, he's admitted now, and we've seen in text messages, that he thought that Sidney Powell 
is a, is a, is a moron, an idiot. You know, <laughs> the, the, one of Trump's uh, lawyers. She's, I mean, yeah. she is Sounds quite like something. <laughs> I, I could write a book about just watching and Sydney Powell messages. do a press conference talking about Hugo Chavez, and she's fascinating. But it's clear that he and Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, these text messages that have gone on, prove that these people knew exactly that everything was. Uh, you know, a, a, a hoax, a scam, that there was no election interference, that everything was legitimate and they were just trying to swing the election in, in Donald Trump's favor by talking about the irregularity. What, what does that now tell us about the man Tucker Carlson in terms of he, his, you know, his true self and, and the difference between that person on screen and off screen? You know, it's hard to say. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm kind of fascinated by is the fact that these bits and pieces are being released. Um, you know, it seems very much like it is an attempt to um, silence Tucker, to, you know, gain compliance over him, um, but also maybe to show his audience, you know, sort of like you said, behind the curtain, to show who he really is. Um, but I'm not sure what's going on with that. Um, and, and I don't think anybody knows yet. Um, but it's sort of a fascinating thing to watch unfold. Um, like you, you know, I have also wondered, is that really who Tucker is or, or not? And it was the same thing that I wondered about Alex Jones. It was the same thing I wondered about Donald Trump, right? You know, you sort of look at these people and you can see how they perform for the spectacle. And you wonder, like, is that real or or not. Because Alex Jones, in his divorce uh, testimony, he basically, he, his, his defense was that it's an act, oh, and he puts it on, yeah. and, and it's not really him. And, and I mean, yeah. he's, he's, he lost very much in that case as well. But, but this is the problem. It's more like you have to be a kind of evil, far-right operative, like deep in your soul. And then when you go on TV, you just turn it up a bit. You, know, you, you increase the volume. Mm -hmm. Or in the case of Tucker Carlson, you turn it up to, to 11. Yeah, so the thing with, with all three of them is that it almost doesn't matter if they are authentically, you know, fascist or whatever, authoritarian, um, because the effect is the same on the audience, right? The effect on democracy is the same. The effect on political decision-making and whether we're able to solve political problems is the same. So it doesn't matter if they earnestly are these people or they're playing a character. Um, and really, it took me a long time to figure that out about Trump. <laughs> um, it, it, it's, it's the same for all three of them. And then the other thing is that after you play a role for a while, you do become that. Um, you know, and I think Especially if it's successful for you, if, if it's making yeah. you money, and if it's a positive thing, then you maybe grow into that role more. Sure. I mean, the same way that framing works on audiences, it works um, on the person who is using those frames, deploying those frames. And, you know, if you're getting a lot of positive reinforcement for playing that character, you know, that's activating the dopamine receptors in your brain. That's, you know, it's changing your brain. Um, you know, when Hannah Arendt talked about the banality of evil, um, I think that this is kind of what she meant, is that um, the more you play a role, even if it's just a bureaucratic role of following directions, um, the more you become that thing, right? 
to become... We all do it, though, don't we? Like, if we go for a job interview, we try and morph into the person that they want us to be to try and get the job. Right. This is more of, like, a, a bigger version of that. It, it can be, yeah. Um, you know, and, and so a lot of us spend our time trying to speak with people, um, you know, people who are in the media, who have a lot of political power. Um, you know, they often think of themselves as advocates for democracy. Uh, but, you know, what happens if you're someone who thinks you want to be an advocate for fascism? Um, you know, if you're rewarded for that behavior, then that's who you're going to be. Um, Tucker Carlson was exposed with a, a, another message that he sent just a few days ago where he referred to that's not how white men fight. And this has been a, a, you know, quite a controversial thing because yet again it kind of supports his argument for the great replacement theory, which is something he's talked about a lot on his show, where, where white people he claims are being replaced by people of color, which is not based in truth. It's just, again, trying to kind of push fear. Let's just talk about the audience for a second, because I really feel like the, 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 the effect of people like Tucker Carlson being allowed to have a, a cable news show, let alone one that has a huge audience, is that it's making the population angry. It's making people scared and in fear. It's putting the fear of God into people because they think that these things are happening even though there's no evidence in the real world of them happening. So, so what, what, ha what has happened to uh, American society? We know 70 million odd people voted for Trump and Tucker Carlson is, a, you know, he's filed a very good reason that they have. Was that a vote out of fear? Certainly some of that is, um, is a vote out of fear and attributed, you know, in part to what Tucker was doing. Um, yeah, I mean, so cultivation theory is the one that we use in uh, media studies that tells us that our reality is constructed for us by the media we consume. And the classic example of that is actually crime statistics. Um, you know, most people watch local news if they watch the news, and when they watch their local news, they see a lot of local crime, um, and they think that crime is going up, but statistics show that actually crime has not gone up. Um, and so, you know, the disconnect between what they see and what they believe um, is important, and it's hard to, to undo that, right? So you can see the statistics and say, oh, well... Okay, you know, rationally. That doesn't change the way you feel. That doesn't change the fear. Um, and so, you know, we've seen just a, a, a whole slew of really unfortunate um, gun violence, shootings, deaths um, recently um, that are, are just, you know, a kid rang the wrong doorbell <laughs> or the cheerleader got in the wrong car or whatever. Um, you know, this is a nation that collectively has PTSD. Um, if you think about the years of, of having Trump in office, and then you think about on top of that, having COVID, um, as you know, everyone did around the world. So we're stressed out. <laughs> and, you know, a, a responsible communicator, whether it's a presidential candidate or whether it is someone in the media, um, would do their best to allay those fears, right? would try to make us more trusting of one another, would try to make us less frustrated, would try to make us less polarized. Um, Tucker Carlson has spent the last four years as the center spoke 
um, doing the opposite, trying to make us more paranoid, more frustrated, more polarized uh, for his own benefit. There was another example of this that happened on uh, Monday, um, and there's been protests in New York about it, and this is after a, a young man was effectively put into a, a, a chokehold by um, a former Marine, a, a young black man, Jordan Neely, 30 years of age, and uh, he's a Michael Jackson impersonator, and he was used to perform on the, um, on the subway, he is homeless, He's poor, he's mentally ill, and unfortunately, all of those things, he was being a nuisance on the train, but he didn't deserve to die. He was effectively executed in a, not a dissimilar way to George Floyd by uh, you know, a, a, a white man taking hold of a black man by the neck until he expired. I mean, this yeah. kind of, I mean, that's, that's a lynching, right? This kind of... This kind of stuff happens because people like Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump are pressing people's buttons all the time, almost making people feel like it's down to them to take matters into their own hands, blaming people of color, blaming immigrants, blaming Mexicans, blaming trans people, anybody who is not white and Christian and, and, and cisgender. I mean... This is very dangerous for American society. It's very dangerous. And um, what they have done is convince their audience that, you know, we're in a state of nature. That it's the war of all against all. Um, and that there is no authority who can save them. They better arm up. They better be prepared to defend themselves and their property and their people. Uh, because they they are out to get them. <laughs> they do, you know, the whole canopy. Take away their Second Amendment rights. Um, and, and you can't hear that message. You're already PTSD, right? You're already stressed out. Um, so it's very easy to activate the fight flight response. Um, and these people are prepared to fight, right? Um, well, they almost want to. Fight. They want it's, to fight. Especially vets, you know, ex ex military people. And there's a lot of those who voted for Donald Trump. There, there is this sense that they are almost a, a militia, a, 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 an unofficial army. And, you know, this this past week, there, there were um, Enrique Tarrio, of course, the leader of the, the Proud Boys, got his uh, sentence for for um, you know conspiracy charges against the United States, and, and four of them went down. I mean, the, the, the proof now is there of how serious they were taking this. They actually wanted a revolution. They wanted to bring down the, the, the Biden government and, and reinstall or certainly maintain the Trump government. I mean, that was the plan all along. I mean, this, the stakes are pretty high here, aren't they? Stakes are very high. Um, I don't know how anyone could look at what happened on January 6th. Um, of course, we know more now than we did um, on that moment uh, in that day. But um, I don't know how anyone could look at what happened on January 6th, the way that the January 6th committee has told us about the multiple layers of plotting that went on at the state level with, um, you know, groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Um, we have now seen several seditious conspiracy um, convictions. 
Uh, these are people who saw themselves as Trump's army, and they wanted to prevent the peaceful transition of power, um, and they were willing to use violence in order to do that. And they heard from dozens of witnesses, uh, you know, over more than three months. You know, this is one of the most serious cases that, that the Justice Department have, have taken forward. And, you know, they were entirely successful. That All of their hunches were, were right. All of the evidence was corroborated. And, and you know, it, it, that story was not reported on Fox, was just not yeah. mentioned. And yet you could argue that that was of, of the day. If it wasn't for Clarence Thomas being caught yet again... <laughs> taking bribes, it, uh, it it would have been the, the top story on, on every newspaper and every, and every network. Um, proof that, that there was this seditious conspiracy in place to, to overturn the election. Right, absolutely. And, I mean, so Tucker Carlson had done, for at least a year, year and a half, he had done um, a very specific... Um, role, plan, plot, um, of poisoning the well about whatever we would learn about the January 6th um, insurrection to vicious conspiracy. Um, you know, he called them patriots. He called it a patriot purge. He said that um, there was this conspiracy <laughs> in the federal government to rid the nation of these patriots, um, right? And so um, he had prepared his audience to believe that um, anyone who questioned what happened on January 6th um, was part of the problem, right? That they were um, not Americans, they were not patriots. And um, again, that kind of us versus them framing, that kind of conspiracy theory, cherry picking of evidence, um, all of that, um, you know, of course it does a, a disservice to his audience because they're not well informed, but they think that they are. And um, one of the most amazing things that I saw him do was during one of the January 6th hearings, he had um, a split screen with himself and um, the January 6th committee's presentation. And then he would bring in some person to comment on what was going on. And he would do it strategically so that whenever January 6th committee was showing video that he didn't want to show his audience or making points that he didn't want his audience to hear, he would bring in this guest and they would silence the committee. And so if you were watching this as an audience member, you would think that you had seen the actual January 6th committee presentation. You would think that you had all the information that was provided. You had a very carefully, very well orchestrated, um, very, you know, edited version of reality. And that's the kind of thing that he was um, so good at doing, is making his audience feel informed, and yet they were completely deluded. A bit like when Kevin McCarthy gave him the unedited tapes of the right. Capitol attack. I and mean, this whole furore created about, you know, finally the real videos are going to be shown, and of course his selections had no resemblance to what was shown at the January 6th committee. It was the bits like where they walked through the main tree. Four minutes. Just tourists. <laughs> In the Just rotunda. Being, being tourists, right? <laughs> right. And, and it's, I mean, it's so obvious to anybody who has a modicum of critical thinking, right? And, and, and isn't this something that we really need to talk more about? Yeah. About the people that Lack have the ability thinking. to think critically. 
and you know, can you could call critical thinking like a, a bullshit radar, <laughs> a simpler version of it, right? Why were people's bullshit radars going on and being like, well, hang on a second. I mean, is it that people are so um, just unable? They're so committed to the cult that they're unable to see through that. They don't allow themselves to see through that, or. You know, I don't want to say people are dumb, because I don't think people are. I think, you know, people in, in the main have a great instinct and an ability to kind of sense something. But that skill, that sense, is, is eradicated when people like Tucker Carlson get on screen and deliver their own narrative. Right. Uh, so part of it is motivated on. reasoning, right? So that they don't want to be disabused of, of their false notions. So that's part of it, but we all have that. Um, I think a really important part is the fact that they saw it with their own eyes. They wouldn't know the difference, right? So even if they think of themselves as critical thinkers, as using, you know, a shit detector, whatever, um, you know, they're, they're watching Tucker Carlson and they don't realize, you know, that they're not seeing all that there is to see. Because they think they're seeing it with their own eyes, but therefore it's true. I mean, it's the same, you know, worry that we have about these things. Right? Like, I saw it. It happened. You know, Donald Trump got arrested <laughs> with all of these cops chasing him, you know, whatever. Um, you know, and how do you, you, you can't unsee, you know, what you saw. <laughs> Um, and, and I think that that is one of the main ways that Tucker was able to manipulate his audience. Um, you know, he used really dramatic music. He used, you know, these surprising cuts, um, these scroll. Like, it's very engaging. There's so much to see that your brain can't process all of it at the same time. You certainly can't think critically about all of it, right? Our brains just can't do that. Um, and so, you know, there's so much going on. You think you know. You don't know. The, the network has struggled to replace him in the last few weeks. Um, the ratings dropped by half when someone else sat in that chair. Um, you know, there's a very and, and then Tucker Carlson did actually come out and a few days later and put a video out on his on social media. Um, I don't know if you saw that video. I'm sure you did, but it made no sense. I mean, it was a, a whole word salad talking about how they're trying to do this to you and there's this and, and the media wants to do this and is stopping people from having this. And I, I, I watched it like three or four times and I was like, this is garbage. Like He said nothing. And it made me think, firstly, I thought he's trying to disassociate himself from all of the bad that he has done over the last few years by claiming that, that you know, it's, it's pointless, this type of media reporting is, is of no value. And I was like, wow, he's distancing himself from his own channel, his own product, because maybe that will help him in a future court case or something, who knows? Then I was like, no, he just wants to confuse people. You know, this is, goes back to the Steve Bannon thing, you know, create chaos. They hit people with all these words and all these different views and all this different news and they'll just be completely yep. disoriented. What do you think he was trying to do in that? Now, when I watched that, I thought, again, because he has this connection with his audience, right? he has more credibility with his audience than Fox News does. And I saw him trying to... Um, 
cheap credibility that he has with his audience and to turn the us versus them polarization against Fox. Right. Um, and it's what we saw happen um, when Donald Trump attacked Fox News after the first primary um, of the 2016 election. If you remember, you know, Megyn Kelly asked him questions that he didn't like. And so he went on this rampage and attacked her and Fox News all night long. And then for weeks, you know, they were at war. Um, and I, I think that what I saw there was Tucker Carlson sort of trying to lay out that pathway for himself, that he can move forward, hey, hey, um, you know, and try to retain whatever integrity and credibility he has with his audience outside of Fox, attacking them. Yeah. I have a feeling he's going to set up his own little streaming channel or something. I don't think he'll go to yeah, he wants to, or somewhere. He wants to host a debate now. That's um, right. He wants to have like a GOP primary debate of his own. Yeah. And if he has Trump um, on his side, which it seems like he does, um, we'll see. Trump to Trump. Um, you know, I think that that is an important action of, you know, conservative information. And, uh, you know, the two of them working together, uh, I think they'll be quite powerful with Republican and conservative voters. Terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I want to talk in just a moment about this concept of owning the libs, um, and we'll explain what that really means. First, we have to take a, a quick pause for our sponsor, and then we'll come back with more from Dr. Jennifer Machia. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's so easy to get caught up in what everyone else needs from you. Never take a moment to think about what you need from yourself. I know in my own life, I'm dealing with a lot of different factors, be it family, friends, or work. Right. Y'all still there? Oh, hi there. Shout out to KAMP Student Radio at the University of Baritstone. And keep it working, game coming up now where it's a to and fro between the White House and Biden and kept 60% off plus free shipping. Owning the libs seems to be a, um, the, the kind of modus operandi of the Republican Party these days at whatever cost. And we have this kind of debt limit, debt ceiling theatrical game coming up now where it's a to and fro between the White House and Biden and oh. Kevin McCarthy and the, and the Republicans. And it's going to be like a standoff and it's, it has the potential to crash the economy oh. if, if the U.S. defaults on its, on its debt. And uh, just for context, uh, this was actually, this idea of the debt limit was created by Congress in 1917. And it sets the amount, the maximum amount of outstanding federal debt that the U.S. government can incur. Well, uh, I think in January this year, the total national debt, the, the debt ceiling, both stood at 31.4 trillion dollars. What does it say about patriotism when the Republicans are prepared to crash the economy just to overlive? <laughs> Yeah, it's not an issue of patriotism for them. Yeah, um, <laughs> definitely owning the libs uh, or, you know, frustrating Biden's agenda probably is how they would say it. Sabotage. Um, 
is the only thing that matters. I mean, it's the same thing they said, you know, when Obama was elected, right? Like, our one goal is to make sure that Obama doesn't get to pass any policy. Obama, uh, Biden has done a fairly good job with at least some aspects of the economy. Um, and that's not a story that we're told very often. Um, and so this provides the sort of vacuum where, um, you know, the Republicans can and get involved with this thing. And most people don't understand the debt ceiling. So, you know, it's a story that, um, that is rife for uh, confusion. Exploitation, because people can't right. get their heads around it. Yeah. That's right. We're like, wait, why do we have that debt? You know, that sounds like a lot of money. If I had that much debt, that would be bad. Um, you know, and they think that it's, um, you know, about future spending. And, and so that's why those issues are linked together in the way that um, McCarthy is trying to negotiate this thing. Uh, but they're not linked together. And it's Trump's debt, really. I mean, it's the debt that's gone before. Quarter of it is Trump's debt. And the, the whole point of this is that the U.S. is a very wealthy country. You know, it spends an enormous amount nine of money trillion. On, on the military yeah, and the nine trillion security. And Biden's already no shortage of, uh, of, of tax dollars coming in. Paid off two trillion. And, and it can afford this. It can afford this level of debt kind of in the, on a day-to-day -day level. But for me as an outsider, seeing this kind of wrangling that happens every year or two where they kind of use it as, as political collateral, the reason I refer to patriotism is because if you're putting the country first, you don't default on the debt just to win points against the other side. Right. I don't think that um, that people understand, Help. Uh, you know, sort of how much the United States benefits from being, you know, the world's currency, Idiot. Uh, you know, yeah. from being <laughs> the stable economy from being um, the one that most of the world, anyway, looks to for financial leadership. Um, you know, China would love to have that role. There are other countries that would love to have that role. And the minute we start defaulting on our debt, the, the minute we lose that power, right? Um, and so, to me, it's a national security issue. So when you talk about patriotism, that's how I think of it. Um, and, and I don't know that we're hearing that story presented that way. And I think that it's, you know, part of America's soft power, but it's also part of our hard power. <laughs> right. Um, and so, yeah, I don't I don't see how the Republicans can think of themselves as advocating American first policies um, while uh, ruining America's credit. Let's just talk about the psychology of owning the list. Because it has become something not just for the Republican leaders, but also for Republican voters. Yeah. Where they care not for the detail of policy, it's just about getting one over on the libs, exposing the libs, anything that makes the, the, the kind of liberal left is a, is a loss for them and a win for, for Republicans and, and especially MAGA Republicans. And this is something that the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene are kind of pushing anything. Literally, they'll take anything before a committee. They'll come up with any. I mean, there's a story they're trying to peddle at the moment about some, I don't know, Biden story being paid off by something and Hunter. and every, I mean, it, none of it is based in truth. It's just owning the libs. What, what does that mean, really, for the, for the, for the electorate? 
Uh, it's very interesting to me to think about just how many people pay attention to politics and how many people avoid politics altogether. Something like 87% of the nation does not pay attention to politics and oh my God. political information at all on a day-to-day basis. Um, it's actually a very small percentage of the electorate. And that's you know true for as long as political communication scholars have been looking at that, right? So the earliest studies that were done in the 1940s, you know, they went door to door, every seven uh, houses, and they asked, how much are you paying attention to politics? And people were like, yeah, I'm not, I don't know anything about that. So the even people, after Trump, is there not more engagement post there, the Trump there presidency? There was engagement during the Trump um, administration, but it has fallen off again. Um, and <laughs> you see a lot of news organizations are having trouble, struggling. <laughs> um, but And so that means that um, people who do pay attention, like us, you know, we tend to be um, a little bit different <laughs> from the normal electorate. We're more engaged. Uh, we're more likely to pay for new subscriptions. Uh, we feel uncomfortable if we have missed a news story, you know, so we want to check on the information. We're willing to argue with people on the Internet about political topics. Most people avoid that, <laughs> you know, at, at all costs. And so it's not hard to see how the people the who are politically engaged are extremists for their party, right? Highly polarized, highly engaged. Um, and so, yeah, they want to own the list. Um, my dad watches Fox News and OAN and Newsmax and, um, you know, is not a Biden supporter. And uh, I was with him at the grocery store and I said, let's go over and get some bread. And he said, let's go, Brandon. <laughs> ha ha ha. Right. And he started chuckling. And I was like, buddy. <laughs> You know, and it was just wrote, right? The slogan, like, let's own the libs over there in the bread department. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's all in response. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's part of, of their identity, like who they are as they walk around. Um, it's certainly not good for the nation. <laughs> it's not but good for... it also for... lacks any detail, doesn't it? Yeah. When they are asked, you know, what don't you like about critical race theory? Right. They have absolutely no explanation uh, or understanding of, of what, what it might entail. Okay. And, and this is all, you know, about top line. It's about selling politics. This is why Trump was so successful in his, during his term, right? Because he was able to sell these you know, very kind of extremist, but also quite kind of obvious policies and make it clear to people in a much more digestible fashion what his policies were. Whereas the rest of us looked at them and we were like, what, you're gonna ban all Muslims from coming into America, right? Right, he didn't even tell us policies. He just told us who to hate. <laughs> he just told us what topics, you know, to be afraid of. And it's, um, of course, that polarization, um, at the same time, it's the way that the political spectacle, right, constructs characters. There are good guys. There are bad guys. There are plot lines that need to be advanced. People need to be entertained, right? Um, you know, you have just a small audience of Americans who are willing to watch the news. You've got to give them something entertaining to keep them there. And so, you know, people are engaged and enraged. And that's the media formula for today. That's the best way to have a reliable audience. That's why Tucker Carlson got 3 million viewers every night. He kept them engaged and enraged. 
this idea of and this slogan of Make America Great Again, I've been thinking more about this recently. Obviously, it's, it's going to become a, another more popular. I think it's going to add another again to the end of it, <laughs> again, again. Because <laughs> a lot of these people, when they're asked, you know, when was America great, they reference this period before wokeness and before. Uh, minority groups were even given the, any attention at all, but they could be racist and nobody criticized them, everybody laughed about it. Um, so they're kind of choosing a period between, I guess, what, nine, the, the, the... ...that Nazis are bad. Scars created <laughs> a, like, a national psychosis. ...and that America is, Trump. you know, stands for democracy. I mean, Those used to be uncontroversial statements. This is what the greatest generation, you know, lived through. Um, boomers grew up with the, but now all of a sudden in the last few years, we're like, oh, well, maybe Nazis aren't so bad and maybe fascism is actually good. And <laughs> right. Like yeah, maybe the real good, Nazis, good Nazis are those liberals who believe in the rule of law yeah. and, you know, education and things like that. Um, it's a very confusing time where up is down and down is up <laughs> and um, we sort of have to get our bearings again. Let's talk just for a moment about the, the wokeness, because this is something that Ron DeSantis, who's currently touring, sharing his brand of Florida extremism with the rest of the country, uh, is, is trying to you know, push. In fact, there was a video, like a meme doing the, the rounds of him saying the word woke like 30 times in 20 seconds or something. I mean, to be awake is something that I am personally very proud of, and I'm sure you feel the same. Yeah. And I like to refer to it as being awake rather than woke. Being awake to the needs of minority groups or to people who have traditionally struggled in a, in a dominant kind of white male society. Um, not complicated, is it, to, to understand the idea of, 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 a, of a modern society being more thoughtful about everybody in society and not just those who have traditionally succeeded or, or you know, been the, the masters of, of their universe. But it's now being used as a political tool in such a way that whereas black people suffered during the, that kind of moving up to the civil rights movement, and now it's trans people, it's trans athletes, the LGBTQ community, the kind of the, the latest victims of this weaponization. How, how do you feel and how, how do you, what do you think about this idea that wokeness is, is now used for all the wrong reasons? Yeah, so it's, it's very similar to what we saw in 2016. Um, Donald Trump ran against political correctness, right? So his whole argument was, they hate me because I speak the truth and no one's going to tell you this because they're so politically correct and, you know, scripted and full-tested and all that. Um, you know, and so it's a continuation of that. It's a very popular idea um, against political correctness. I didn't know how unpopular political correctness was <laughs> until I, I did some research on that, and they have pulled that, of course. Um, and it turns out a lot of people are really frustrated about um, political correctness and about what Well, Bill Maher, for example, yeah. on his own show. You yeah, know, whole show. Elon Musk on, and they were, <laughs> they were both celebrating each other as two white men 
celebrating the fact that, you know, wokeness is, is the, the worst part of, of American culture right now. Yeah, yeah. So um, whenever they talk about political correctness or wokeness, I hear it as the same critique. Um, and it's essentially, as I hear it, we don't want to treat people as human beings, <laughs> right? Yeah. We don't want to affirm human dignity. We don't want um, anything... We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to do it, certainly. Um, you know, we don't want anything that isn't um, easy for us, right, that doesn't cater to us and our needs. Um, and uh, <laughs> I just don't think that's successful, right? Like, the world is changing. The world has changed. And um, well, the what rest was... of the world has. I mean, right. That's something to remember, isn't it, that outside right. of the U.S., the rest of the world has completely moved on. Right. They, they're, they're dealing with climate change. They're dealing. Yeah. They're dealing. Wokeness is not even really an issue for so many countries. No, it's just, you know, no, it's it, normal. Yeah. So it might have been shocking for Americans to see, you know, an African American president. But when you saw Barack Obama on the world stage with other world leaders, he fit right in. <laughs> right? Like uh, it's an international world uh, that we live in. And demographics are not on the side of, you know, white male exclusionary power anymore. That's just not going to happen in the future. And so, you know, I, I almost feel bad for them <laughs> when they complain about, like, the woke situation. Because it just tells me it's a tell, right, like in poker, that they're scared about the future because they don't think they can control it. Um, but the other part of it that you asked about, I think is really important, which is positioning of people as hate objects, um, right, through this discourse. And, um, you know, politics, especially over the last 20 years around the world, is about creating an enemy and running against that enemy. Um, and so the Republican Party today has decided that the number one enemy, the biggest threat upon which they can rally their constituents, is anti-trans discourse. Um, and, uh, you know, we've heard we should eliminate trans people from public life. We should eliminate trans people from sports. Um, you know, we should... And even from politics. As we from saw politics, Zephyr, from political right. spaces altogether. Um, and and it's, it's really, really important That's that we pay attention sorry. to that. Huh? Um, you know, I think that Transgender people are um, are an interesting like thing to think about in terms of fascism, because fascism is all about normalizing a certain understanding of the world, right? So we're gonna make you think that we know what normal is, and that everything else that's not normal is bad and evil and out to get you. Um, we're gonna tell you that normal is you know white hetero. Whatever. <laughs> um, Christian and yeah, and yeah, Christian, whatever. Republican, certainly Republican, and it has a gun. Um, and trans people don't fit any of those. Like they don't fit those boxes. And in fact, their very existence gives a lie, like proof that normalization is a lie, right? That normal is a fiction that's been constructed. And so. To me, the reason why um, trans people are being targeted is because they think, of course, that it's politically expedient, that it will rally their base. But also because 
existence of trans people directly confounds the fascist agenda, just their existence. And so they want to eradicate them from public space. Um, they want to make it impossible for people to transition. They want to criminalize um, treating children, um, you know, with gender affirming care. They want to do all of these things um, just to create the hate object, but also because they want to show their ability to define normal. And I think that's so important to understand. Isn't it going to become a serious problem? It's already. The United States yeah. is exposed as being 50 years behind the rest of the world. Right? Yeah. Not just in terms of yeah. society and culture and integration, but in terms of climate change, yeah. which has been politicized here, and AI, which is being used, you know, already being used yeah. on, on, on such a level elsewhere. Um, and I know a lot of its origins are, are here, and, you know, but Silicon Valley is not the rest of America. And, and you know, so just in terms of, of labor and training, you know, America will be left behind if people are not totally on top of all these things. And, and my, my concern is that, you know, this country is so isolationist by nature of its scale that it, it, it hasn't really taken the time to see how other countries are doing it and dealing with it and living with it. And that yeah. means that the U.S. will suffer. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, cultural theorist named Raymond Williams wrote about dominant, emergent, and residual cultures and how they sort of battle for control. How, you know, what was once a dominant culture becomes residual over time, right? Because some new culture emerges um, that defines reality and what's important in different ways. Uh, and I think what you see at this moment in the United States is that, you know, there was a sort of new emergent culture that became dominant, and the residual culture has decided to fight back, right? That they will not accept, <laughs> the, you know, the new normal. Um, and the rest of the world has already moved on, like you said. And so we are, at this point, this residual culture. Residual cultures die out, um, you know, and so again, if we're thinking about, you know, national security, American soft power, uh, you know, how we are um, in terms of other countries and, and how we are on the world stage, um, being a residual culture, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, it's like, um, you know, an ancient empire that, that fell apart. Take yourself out of the position of power. Especially if there's infighting, which is what the Russians want us to do yeah. and what the Chinese want us to do. They've been helping that along with their interference, not just yeah. in elections, but in our access to social media and, and then public discourse. I mean, it's, it's so interesting, isn't it, how there's a whole other world you know, yeah. beneath the surface, behind our computer screens or, or you know, you... you if you, if you walk around or take public transport or tr public transit, you see people, everyone's like this, right? Everyone's like staring into their device. And I look at those people and I'm like, you think you're looking at your phone. Your phone is looking at you. And you have been brainwashed into doing this so that whoever is in there is manipulating you through Facebook or TikTok or however it is that you're enjoying that thing. You are so the kind of dopamine effect that you spoke about. We're so drawn to it, but actually we're being manipulated. 
Our data is being used and mined and harvested, and we have become, I mean, that Fritz Lang film from 1939, Metropolis, right, <laughs> which is definitely worth re-watching. It's a little long and dull, but it has that kind of 1984 message. Uh, and we are all becoming the robots. We are, and we don't even realize. That's right. Um, you know, there's Tristan Harris, who's a design uh, ethicist, computer ethicist. Um, he did an interview that I watch with my students where he says, there are a thousand engineers that spend every day trying to make sure that you spend as mo much of your time on your apps and your phones as, as you possible. And they do that um, in such a way that their goals become your goal. And we repeat that a lot over the course of the semester, you know, when I teach propaganda, because there are so many layers of things in our life where our goals are um, pushed down. And, um, you know, you might think that you go on your phone for a specific reason, but as soon as you get on your phone, whatever that reason was, is eliminated. And, um, you know, that there are all of these apps that you wake up every morning and you're like, I'm going to have a day. And all these apps are like, I'm going to control your day. It's, it's, so, it's so interesting. I just finally want to talk about uh, CNN. Um, as you know, they've traditionally leaned left. Well, the new CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, which is CNN's parent company, on Friday morning defended the cable network's upcoming town hall event with Donald Trump by invoking the age-old gotta-hear-both-sides logic. Um, he, his name is David Zaslav. Uh, he was asked to weigh in on the twice-impeached former president's scheduled 10th of May appearance on CNN. He said, the U.S. has a divided government. We need to hear both voices. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, Caitlin Collins is going to be the, oh. the, the anchor for that, that um, uh, oh, episode. Boycott CNN. I, mean, I am aghast I'm for a, a twice-impeached former... President who committed insurrection against his own like country, an insurrectionist and a serial rapist. the COVID fuck pandemic, fuck who lied every day, where there was a scandal every day, who's currently in court for a for a rape charge, and 26 <laughs> different women have, you know, have uh, allegations of, of, of sexual assault against him. How is it that the one of the leading news networks is prepared to give him a platform, and how dangerous is that? Uh, to me, it just shows how disordered uh, our news values are, right? Um, so one way of thinking about um, news values, what we should be paying attention to and covering <clears throat> in journalism, is that um, we should follow a democratic motive, would be my preference, right? Which says that we should be motivated by what would be the best for democracy, democratic stability. So things like I said before, like reducing polarization, um, you know, building trust between communities, um, trying to alleviate frustration, things like that. Solve pol political problems. That would be a democratic motive. Um, but then there's the profit motive. There's the partisanship motive. Um, you know, there's all kinds of other the spectacle motives. Um, other motives that can drive a news agenda. And it does seem like um, inviting Trump isn't going to help 
cause of democracy. Um, it is, you know, about partisan agenda, um, right? So there's an election coming up. He's the front runner. That means that he has news value, um, you know, and, and that's... Box office. Yeah, and he's going to draw attention, and, you know, it'll be a news event. You know, maybe Caitlin Collins is going to ask tough questions, which would be dramatic and exciting, right? So the spectacle aspect of it. You know, like... There's all kinds of things that <laughs> go into thinking about that. I don't think that democracy and what's good for democracy is at the forefront of that thing. Because I can, I'm sure you can too, I can yeah, predict the type of questions that Caitlin fuck Collins that. is preparing. It's so fuck obvious that. to me. And she's going to try and, more, you know, she's going she's gonna to give him a shit sandwich, basically, right? <laughs> she's she's going to butter him up to make him spill the beans and then she's going to try and hit him harder towards the end and he's going to get very frustrated and it's going to end up being a bit of a slagging match <laughs> but none of it should be happening i mean none of it because it's almost it as if be in fucking prison again, that's what should be happening more important than you guys don't fucking stand up yourself and this is very similar to the republicans wanting to crash the economy to own the libs this is a, it's about you know th this idea of self being more important than this collective responsibility yeah and and i'm not sure who the audience for this is going to be because republicans don't want to watch cnn even to see trump and um liberals don't want to see trump on cnn um <laughs> You know, and so maybe there are undecided moderate voters who don't know anything about Donald Trump, but I can't imagine that there's many of them um, <laughs> who exist. Um, you know, and so I'm not sure who the audience will be for this. Um, Donald Trump will attack her. He will lie continuously. We can predict exactly what he'll say. He'll double down it on the same old script. There's no news. There's no news value. Um, you know, I, I really don't see what they think is going to be good about this. Okay. We huh. shall see. Uh, we have to finish, but I'm so grateful to you for joining us yet again, uh, Dr. Jennifer Machia. I'm Anthony Davis. Please subscribe to The Weekend Show here on YouTube or as an audio podcast. And support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash 5-Minute News. 5-Minute News is a short daily podcast which drops oh, every morning so you can hear me tell you dead. what's happening in the U.S. and around the world while you're still coffee. Join me next week with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with my Touch. On Thursday, the Department of Justice filed a brief with the Washington, D.C. Court of Appeals, setting forth the DOJ's position that Donald Trump should not be immune from civil lawsuits in connection with his conduct of inciting violence okay, during the January 6th insurrection. We will break it down. And we had another week of congressional committee hearings and speeches on the House. Please, more of this. The contrast between the MAGA Republican madness or, let me correct myself, 
sorry, guys. Lauren Boebert wants us to refer to Republicans as ultra-MAGA. Okay, so the contrast between the ultra-MAGA madness and incompetence compared with the Democratic Party's intelligent, compassionate approach could not be more clear. This is the Democratic Party messaging I've been waiting for, and it is beautiful to see. So then we go from the ultra-MAGA madness on the House floor to ultra-MAGA madness at CPAC, right? CPAC, which in addition to promoting that it is an organization of domestic terrorists, right? That's what they call themselves. They have a, a banner that says, we are domestic terrorists. Now stands for Cult Pack. That's the C and C Pack. The Cult Pack of Donald Trump. This one's conservative organization, I, I, I think. Well, it now looks like a parody of a parody. Kind of like an <laughs> SNL skit of the movie Idiocracy. Like, it's so bafflingly bizarre to see what takes place there. I don't really know what other words to use other than to show you what is actually happening, so we will do that here on this episode. And meanwhile, while that's going on, whatever the heck that is, President Biden is delivering for the American people, right? Based on Biden's policies, for example, the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly has capped the price of insulin to $35 a month, and President Biden delivered an incredible speech talking about that and talking to the Democratic House caucus about issues that actually matter, jobs, working conditions, health care, education, unions, a woman's right to control her body, equality, freedom fiscal stability. This is America. <laughs> like That speech is what America is all about, not this ultra-MAGA weirdness. And yes, speaking about ultra-MAGA weirdness, as Biden is talking about solutions and the positive results of legislation that he spearheaded and signed into law, Donald Trump spent the week raging against Fox and Rupert Murdoch, because of the new Dominion filing that was released, where Murdoch and the Fox host confirmed in text messages. Like, they tried to deny it under oath, but they couldn't, because it was actually their text messages and contemporaneous emails where they said they knew that Trump was a liar, they knew that their viewers were effing lunatics, but they needed to platform it all for ratings. This is the Midas Touch Podcast. I'm in Micellus, joined by Brett and Jordy Micellus. How are you doing, brothers? It is good to be here, brothers. Always a pleasure to be here with the Midas Mighty. Man, just watching the past few days, it's just, it's so, I don't know. There's part of it that is very satisfying to see these Republicans who are so excited to get power, and then they start launching all these investigative hearings, which are just huge wastes of money and are just based on total BS. And then you see them go, and you see them actually face off against intellectual heavyweights, and you see them just fall flat on their face every single time. You just got to laugh sometimes. I mean, it's it's really difficult sometimes to watch all these clips and be like, I can't believe these people have power over our government. Sometimes you just got to sit back and laugh and enjoy the show a little bit. But that's why I'm excited that the people who can do something about it, the Democrats in power right now, have actually learned how to punch back. 
Uh, and a part of me is like, oh, did they learn how to punch back, or is it just in contrast to how crazy and inept the other side is? Do they seem effective? No, I think they actually learned how to punch back. I wish it didn't take total insanity of the Republican Party for them to learn how to do it. Man, <laughs> is it a joy to watch the clapbacks, to watch some common sense be knocked back into these people. Oh boy, do we have a lot of good clips and a lot of good stuff to share with you today. Jordy, how are you doing, man? Looking good, liking the shirt? Thanks, yeah, new, we new can sweater. show expert on fascism and Trump terrorism. I wasn't sure if it was like a, a robe or something, like a bathrobe. No, it's a sweater. Silk? No, it's a sweater. Yeah. No, it's a sweater. Feels, looks yeah. comfy, too. Looks comfy. What's the design on the shirt? You know, I have no idea. A little risky, actually, now that you say it. Like, yeah, are they dragons? Be, are they flowers? Could, are they could be literally anything. I actually, I should have looked into that a bit more prior to wearing it on the show. I have you know no what's idea great? What's audio podcast content talking, talking about, about the majority uh, looks. You're right. You're well, you can use descriptive words. I, you know what it looks like? Have you, are you guys watching The Last like, of Us? You know, it's, I mean, like, there's something called audio books where people describe scenes. Like, I could, like... Jordy's supposed to then say, well, does this look like a marijuana leaf? Well, or I will tell you. I'll tell you <laughs> now, that, now that you've brought it to my attention, have you guys been watching the show The Last of Us on, on HBO? That's what I was thinking, actually. This, I didn't want to be yeah. about it. No, it's all right. This looks like that, that fungus. Like, I'm wearing a fungus <laughs> sweatshirt. It's the fungus that grows and makes everybody zombies. I'm really excited for tonight's show, guys. This is going to be a good one. Real quick, I saw someone when we were teasing the Lauren Bober clip, clip that we're playing a little bit when we said Ultra MAGA. They were Ultra Midas, and that cracked me up. We might need to Ultra, some shirts Ultra, that we that's might need to make some hilarious. Ultra Midas t-shirts. That's yeah. actually freaking hilarious. Hat tip to whoever said that. I missed who yeah, said it. Hat but. tip to you, Jordy, for while juggling kind yeah. of me making fun of your shirt about being fungus. At the same time, you were watching almost like a quarterback. That's what Out I do. Out of the corner of your eye, you saw the comments. Captured it. You captured it. Court vision. And I think the Justice Department captured the correct legal argument in the brief that they filed today before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, where they argued that Donald Trump should not have absolute immunity in connection with his conduct during the January 6th insurrection where Donald Trump incited violence. And this goes back to a case called Nixon versus Fitzgerald. The law goes back to this case. It's a 1982 case, which basically says that presidents, during the time they're in office, for conduct during the time they're in office, almost regardless of what occurs, they have absolute immunity, even if they engage in unlawful conduct. And in the Fitzgerald-Nixon case, Fitzgerald was a government employee, a whistleblower, who alleged that he was wrongfully terminated and sued Nixon directly. And the court, the Supreme Court, found that Nixon had absolute immunity there and dismissed the case. And so one of the things the Department of Justice argued in this civil lawsuit that was brought by members of Congress as well as Capitol Police officers who sued Donald Trump individually for uh, his conduct on January 6th is that the Department of Justice is the outer contours of the constitutional prerogatives of a president. Inciting violence has nothing to do with the roles and responsibilities of a president. And essentially, shame on Donald Trump for even trying to argue that that conduct falls within the outer contours of the 
presidency. You know, it was a difficult juggling act, truthfully, for the Department of Justice, right? Because one of their jobs is to kind of defend Article II powers of the presidency. But because Donald Trump engaged in unprecedented traitorous conduct, the Department of Justice really also, in an unprecedented fashion, had to take a position that presidential powers would be limited, which is not something typically you see the DOJ do in briefs. They're supposed to kind of do the opposite. But here they said, look... This is uh, actually two months ago. (laughs) DOJ opens the floodgates for Trump's worst nightmare. This very narrow issue as it relates to Trump's conduct on that day falls outside of even the most outer contours and they said this is a very narrow and unique set of circumstances and that's what you need to focus on court of appeals one final thing because i saw a lot of posts and people saying the doj ruled this the doj didn't rule anything they're not a court court they were They were asked by the Court of Appeals that was hearing Donald Trump's appeal from the district court order denying the motion to dismiss to file a brief on what their position was. So this still has to be ruled on by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals will rule and ultimately will get appealed to the United States Supreme Court. I have no doubt about that. But it is an important step. And one of the things that the DOJ kind of put in footnote one on page three also is that this whole Nixon versus Fitzgerald legal framework does not apply in criminal cases, which is a very subtle hint for those kind of legal geeks like me to basically say we don't want to even here create any impression that a former president is entitled to any types of immunities when we're talking about crimes. Because they did want to talk about these outer contours where there are tough decisions where presidents can have absolute immunity. So they were basically saying, as it relates to criminal cases, this whole analysis doesn't even apply, kind of subtly hinting that presidents should not even have any types of claims to absolute immunity when it comes to crimes. Yeah, I mean, especially when your crime is inciting an insurrection against the United States. I think if if you grant immunity for that, just think of the implications of, of that. I mean, at, at a certain point, it turns the presidency into, if you lose an election, you have X amount of days from the time you lost the election, from the time of inauguration, to try to overthrow the government. And as long as you do it within that time period, you're good. I mean, it would, it would set the worst standard on the planet. I hope the courts do the right thing here. I hope the Supreme Court does the right thing here. And then in that case, you know, I, I want to see all these lawsuits rain down on Trump. I mean, I know the lawsuits have already, you know, been filed from members of Congress and, and from, you know, uh, fa- families and things like that, officers. And so, I mean, there has to be justice. And I think to be able to hit Trump in this way, um, I, you know, I think we all should hope for, for justice for everybody who was affected by his insurrection. No, absolutely. So um, that's really it for for that development. The other development that I think we should just touch on briefly uh, is that Kellyanne Conway went before the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. She had uh, actually two meetings. She met uh, twice with them. Um, she was involved in the hush money payments that Donald Trump made to the porn star Stormy Daniels to cover up his sexual is five seconds of, of sexual intercourse 
with Stormy Daniels where he paid her off and then recategorized the payment as legal reimbursement to Michael Cohen. Uh, but Kellyanne Conway was the one who called up Cohen. At least Cohen wrote this in his book. Um, uh, and Cohen confirmed today that what he wrote in the book is accurate. He just couldn't talk about it because Cohen's the main witness now in front of the Manhattan District Attorney. But she called Cohen, basically, and was like, good, thank you for doing this for him, basically. Trump was too cowardly and wanted to hide behind it, so Trump had Kellyanne make the call. So that's why she's even in the mix of that. And also, you know, it's possible that the Manhattan District Attorney is asking her about a lot of other financial misconduct by Donald Trump that uh, that uh, she may yeah, have do you, been do you think uh, Do you think she's giving facts, or do you think she's giving uh, alternative facts when she meets with these people? <laughs> well, I think, you know, when I did a video uh, that described Probably that breaking news, herself. and I just watched that clip of alternative facts, and I saw Chuck Todd. Um, Chuck Todd actually did a pretty good Georgia job pressing her in that 2017 interview. Um, but what I noticed, and I reflected upon this after watching that and making that video, and I, I talked about it in the video, there was a lot of fight by the media very early on, but when the alternative facts, like the fungi growing on your shirt, started, it, and it kept on growing and growing and growing, the media kind of gave up, and they got exhausted by it. And that's one of the things about fascism you have to guard. And that's one of the things we talk about a lot here on the Midas Touch Network. Fascism is relentless. Fascism wears you down. There's a reason that in fascist-ruled countries, the fascist faction is never 80% of the population at first. It's always 25 20% of the population who are just relentlessly annoying. And so you have someone like a Chuck Todd there who does a very good job pressing, pressing, pressing. And then after a while, the media is just like, all right, they're just going to lie to us. So just let them say their thing and let's go on and we'll go home to our families and things are just, I don't even want to deal with these idiots. But, but that's not how you deal with fascists. The way you deal with fascists is what we're about to talk about, about what actually happened on the floor of the House of Representatives. Brett, you want to start maybe going through some of these um, clips? And I think you got to start with... Why don't you kick it off, Ben, and then after the clip plays, why don't you give your thoughts, then toss to the next clip, and then give I really thoughts, like talking about these clips. I'm like, I like <laughs> I, I, I really I'm want to I, I got to say, though, it's, it's why, though, we, that, that exact reason that you just brought up about Kellyanne Conway, though, it's why we speak about all this stuff so often, and people are like, you know, you'll get occasionally, you know, well, why are you playing these clips of these crazy people? And Because we refuse to get exhausted by it here. I mean, it is exhausting, but we refuse to let it get us down. And we think that it's really important for the average American out Yeah. Teach her many years, the five many years. How many years? There are four. 
people who are pro-democracy, and whether you're independent or Republican or Democratic, to look at what is going on and this end of the party, which has become the mainstream of the party, and say, that's not for me. I believe in actual American values. So that's why we think it is so important to show you these people. And the moments we pick are very deliberate in order to you to, for you to see the full spectrum of what is actually going on. I mean, the worst thing that you could possibly do is close your eyes and ignore it and pretend like this is a normal time in our politics. It's just not. And that is so epitomized <laughs> right now. By I'm an atheist, and I thank God for the, my, for the Midas touch. CPAC, and it's why we got to talk about it. <laughs> ben, where should yeah, we look, start? And, right? and, and our, our thinking behind this is just not kind of an arbitrary and capricious, hey, this is what we feel in our yeah. gut. This is actually what the literature on authoritarianism and how to combat propaganda, this is all what it reflects. I mean, what we do when we're not recording videos um, is we're having lots of conversations with preeminent experts in the mindset of Russian agitprop. narcissists, authoritarians, we speak to culty programmers, you know, we, we, we steep ourselves, if that's even the right word, uh, in the literature uh, uh, to, to learn about how in the past Harmonies. this disinformation is combated Propaganda. because what is taking place with this ultra-maga movement, as they call themselves, huh. is a modern incarnation of fascism that has repeated historically, that has precedent and that actually has antidotes of how you address it. So with that said, I want to talk and set the, the stage for this clip where Lauren Boebert ultimately calls uh, the MAGA Republican Party ultra-MAGA, and it's because they keep on referring to, just, uh, they keep on referring to the Democratic Party as Democrat Party, Democrat Party, Democrat Oops. I'm Ken Harbaugh. No. This is Burn the Boats, a show about making tough yeah. call. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, oh, no. it, it used to not be controversial Trump to say that Nazis are bad, right? Well, that fascism is for losers and that America is, you know, stands this for democracy. Those used to be uncontroversial statements. Um, this is what the greatest generation, you, you know, lived through. Um, boomers grew up with this. But now, all of a sudden, in the last few years, we're like, oh, well, maybe Nazis aren't so bad, and maybe fascism is actually good, and, <laughs> right, like, maybe the real Nazis are those liberals who believe in the rule of law and, you know, education and things like that. Mega um, it's a very confusing time. We're up <laughs> is down, and down is up, Six and um, we sort of have to get our bearings again. Let's talk just for a moment about the the wokeness, because this is something that Ron DeSantis, who's currently touring, about, um... sharing his brand of Florida extremism with the rest of the country, uh, is is trying to, you know, push. In fact, there was a video, like a meme, doing the the rounds of him saying the word woke, like Trump's nightmare weekends badly lights on. With I'm Jessica, Jessica Denson, Denson, and this is lights on. All right, let's bring it on, prosecutors. Bonnie Willis has a... 
Oh, I'm Ben Mike Trista, what are you doing? And this is Lights On. All right, let's bring it on, prosecutors. Bonnie Willis has at least eight cooperating witnesses in, a, in her criminal probe into Trump in Georgia. And two and a yeah. half years after Trump's summon, Willis has at least eight cooperating DOJ's crimes against democracy. I'm Jessica Denson, and this is Lights On. All right, let's bring it on, prosecutors. And thank Georgia. And two and a half years after Trump summoned his armies to stand back and stand by, the verdict is in. A jury found four members of the Proud Boys guilty on sedition charges this week, and all five. Four. Proud Boys guilty on multiple counts relating to January 6th. That includes Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the group who was not actually present at the Capitol, very significant. This follows earlier guilty verdicts in the trials of Trump's other militia mob, the Oath Keepers, bringing the DOJ's scorecard up to a whopping 14 convictions for seditious conspiracy. But most importantly, the legal groundwork for charging these traitors has been laid. And so far, prosecuting the worst crimes against democracy. is not only possible, it's not only necessary, it is successful. We're late to the party to save our republic, but better late than never, the conspirator-in-chief must be up next. Yeah. Thank you, Georgia. And two and a half yeah. years after Trump summoned his armies to stand back and stand by, Trump's next. the verdict is in. A jury found four members of the Proud Boys guilty on sedition charges what, this week. How many years are they going to get? And all five Proud Boys guilty on multiple counts relating to January 6th. That includes Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the group, who was not actually present at the Capitol, very significant. This follows earlier guilty verdicts in the trials of Trump's other militia mob, the Oath Keepers, bringing the DOJ's scorecard up to a whopping 14 convictions for seditious conspiracy. But most importantly, the legal groundwork for charging these traitors has been laid. Prosecuting the worst crimes Trump against is democracy next, is not only possible, it's not only necessary, it is successful. We're late to the party to save our republic, but better late than never, the conspirator-in-chief must be up next. And thank yeah. you, Georgia. And two and a half years after oh, Trump summoned on. his armies to stand back and stand by, stand back and stand summoned back. his armies to stand back and stand by, the verdict is in. See, a jury found four members of the Proud Boys guilty on sedition charges this week, and all five Proud Boys guilty on multiple counts relating to January 6th. That includes Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the group who was not actually present oh. at the Capitol, very significant. This follows earlier guilty verdicts in the trials of you know, the leader of the group who was not actually present at the Capitol. Verdict okay. January 6th. Verdict is in. See. A jury found four members of the Proud Boys guilty on sedition charges this week, and all five Proud Boys.
Trump is next. On multiple counts relating to January 6th. That includes Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the group who was not actually present at the Capitol, very significant. This follows January 6th. Verdict is this. Touch. A jury found four members of the Proud Boys guilty on sedition charges this week, and all five Proud Boys guilty on multiple counts relating to January 6th. That includes Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the group who was not actually present at the Capitol, very significant. This follows earlier guilty verdicts in the trials of Trump's other militia mob, the Oath Keepers, bringing the DOJ's scorecard up to a whop in the trials of Trump's other militia mob, the Oath Keepers, bringing the DOJ's scorecard up to a whopping 14 convictions for seditious conspiracy. But most importantly, the legal groundwork for charging these traitors has been laid. Prosecuting the worst crimes against democracy is not only possible, it's not only necessary, it is successful. We're late to the party to save our republic, but better late than never, the conspirator-in-chief must be up next. And thank God all signs are pointing in that direction, and not just as they, re as they relate to January 6th. Jack Smith's subpoenas are flying like classified documents out of boxes at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> this week, we learned that Smith is getting to the bottom of missing surveillance footage from Mar-a-Lago with subpoenas issued to the software company who handles cameras for the Trump Org. And the Trump Org itself is the subject of more Smith subpoenas over the Saudi golf tournament that ever so conveniently landed at Trump properties. Why am I thinking of Jared Kushner and a little post-presidency investment of $2 billion? Put it this way. If there's a foreign quid pro quo behind Trump's illegal possession of classified documents and obstruction of justice, Jack Smith is going to find it. And if Trump has a word to muster in his own defense, the first-rate judge in the E. Jean Carroll trial is going to find that, too. In a brilliant move, Judge Lewis Kaplan gave Trump until Sunday night to decide to testify after the babbling predator told reporters in Ireland that he had to leave his golf course early to answer Carol's claims back in New York. Both sides had rested their case on Thursday after Carol's team played the access Hollywood tape and put two other women who were violated by Trump on the stand. Trump didn't even put on a defense. His lawyer, Joe Dacopino, was indefensible. Trump wouldn't call a single witness, including himself. But uh -huh. after hearing of Trump's comment, Judge Kaplan took the highly unusual step of giving him call a single witness, including himself. But after and needs to resign. It's on Thursday after Carol's team played the Access Hollywood tape and put two other women who were violated by Trump on the stand. Trump didn't even put on a defense. His lawyer, Joe Dacopino, was explicit that Trump wouldn't call a single witness, including himself. Played the Access Hollywood tape and put sides had rested their case on Thursday. Uh. After the babbling predator told reporters in Ireland that he had to leave his golf course early to answer Carol's claims back in New York. Of course, it was all bluster. Both sides had rested their case on Thursday after Carol's team played the Access Hollywood tape and put two other women who were violated by Trump on the stand. Trump didn't even put on a defense. His
But he won't even. Trump wouldn't call he's trying. Including himself. But after hearing of Trump's comment, Judge Kaplan took the highly unusual step of giving him one last chance to put up or shut up. Who else is going to be shocked when nothing changes on Sunday night? Maybe the GOP could be shocked Crickets. that a defenseless, treasonous predator is the leading candidate for their presidential nomination. I'm not holding my breath, but I am grateful for my own sanity on all this, if not before, now. for taking on and defeating Donald Trump and in court and knowing after the babbling predator told reporters in Ireland that he had to leave this golf course early to answer Carol's claims back in New York. Of course, it was all bluster. Both sides had rested their case on Thursday after Carol's team played the Access Hollywood tape and put two other women who were violated by Trump on the stand. Trump didn't even put on a defense. His lawyer, Joe Dacapino, was explicit that Trump wouldn't call it him one last chance to put up or shut up. Who else is going to be shocked when nothing changes on Sunday night? Maybe the GOP could be shocked that a defenseless, treasonous predator is the leading candidate for their presidential nomination. I'm not holding my breath, but I am grateful for my own sanity on all this, if not before, now for taking on and defeating Donald Trump and in court and knowing that it is absolutely obscene that he is a free man running for president again, and for knowing how obscene it is that Clarence Thomas is still a Supreme Court justice. The man needs to resign. to more revelations about Thomas's lavish patronage by billionaire Harlan Crow, just last night we learned that back in 2012, none other than Kellyanne Conway was helping up, judicial Kat. activists funnel tens of thousands of dollars to Ginny Thomas. Justice Thomas didn't recuse from a seminal case backed by those activists, and in that 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court peeled back decades of protection under the Voting Rights Act. This is absolutely scandalous. Now, before I had the mental clarity that I do now, I worked with Kellyanne Conway on the Trump campaign, and today I'm bringing you receipts to give you an up-close and personal window into what I know about the attitude behind this corruption. You're not going to want to miss this. And many of these political power brokers wouldn't get away with their crimes and corruption if it weren't for the false label of Christianity. It gives them enormous cover to many Americans of faith. Believe me, I know. And last but not least, I want to shine a light on someone who's pulling back that cover and calling out the hypocrisy of Christians in name only. If you're a believer or not, this will strike a chord with you. I promise. <laughs> well, happy Cinco de Mayo, Ben Maizelas, como estas? Bien, bien, it's great to be here, <laughs> Jessica Denson. Look. When we talk about all of these cases um, that Trump is embroiled in because of his criminal conduct, I never want our lights on luminaries to forget that 
you've actually litigated against Donald Trump and prevailed. You have the blueprint, and it was not some insignificant case. The case over Donald Trump enforcing one of his most prized possessions, his NDAs, you managed to defeat. And Donald Trump threw every one of his tricks, his armies of lawyers at you, and you managed to prevail. And so I want all of our luminaries to make sure they have that context in mind as you talk about the various cases um, and litigation chicanery that he is involved in. And look, I never thought that Donald Trump was actually going to show up uh, for the federal trial, uh, the E. Jean Carroll case in Manhattan, but I never really thought what Donald Trump's plan was going to be the depths of his cowardice. I, I should have known, but the depths of his cowardice each time just manages to just like go, oh, you're, you're that big of a coward? I mean, just think about this. He came up with a bogus reason why he had to be in Scotland and Ireland. He literally fled the country during the trial where he's accused of heinous, heinous conduct. And then at the very last minute, he tried to pull the trick. It's like the third grade juvenile kind of petulant fascist third grader, no offense to them, trick. He goes, and the last day he's like, oh, now I got to return. After evidence was all put on, as his side was resting their case, Donald Trump goes, I got to return right now because I have to confront E. Jean Carroll. I got to show up knowing that the case was basically over and what was his plan? He was going to basically say, I came back, I flew back, and judge, I'm the victim, you treated me so unfairly, I was going to testify. I was in Ireland doing all of this big business person stuff, and then I had to, then I showed up, and now the case is over? What? I'm being treated so unfairly. And even though his lawyer, Joe Takapina, was saying to the judge, look, you know what I'm dealing with here, judge, he's not showing up. We're resting. He's not testifying. He's waived his right to testify. Judge Lewis Kaplan, the federal judge presiding over the case, so smart, knew exactly what Trump oh, yeah. was doing and said, you know what? We'll give him till Sunday to show up. Yep. Contact me by 5 p.m. Eastern time on Sunday. Let me know if Trump's ready to go. Um, and if he doesn't want to testify, fine, but I'll give him a few more days to make that decision. Totally calling his bluff. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, I love that so much. And right on, right on the heels of that, we have Fonnie Willis learning out of Georgia that she has at least eight cooperating uh, witnesses in eight of these fake electors. Can you bring us up to speed on what's going on down in Georgia, Ben? Yeah, you know, I, I always want to be, you know, as accurate as possible um, with the luminaries, even when the headline that there's eight cooperating fake electors. Um, would be a great headline to really lean into. And that is one of the things you can glean from the filing that was just made, but that's not really what the filing said. So let me just, for the sake of accuracy, let all our luminary know, luminaries know what happened. So Tony Willis, the district uh, attorney of Fulton County, filed this motion to disqualify a lawyer um, who represents 10 of the fake electors basically saying there's a conflict of interest between the various fake electors that she represents, that they're pointing fingers at each other, and that they previously turned down immunity deals. 
um, and that's and that uh, rather um, the, the the lawyer didn't convey the immunity deals to those clients, and they didn't even have an op opportunity to even know about the deals that their lawyer essentially turned down for them without the deals even being presented. But this is now a filing from that lawyer who basically says that's not the case. Eight of the people I represent have actually taken the immunity deals, and they've testified, you know, one of the sources is saying that they testify that they still believe they committed no crimes, um, and they claim that they're not necessarily even pointing the finger at other people, uh, but they just received immunity kind of nonetheless. Ultimately, what Fawny Willis is trying to establish here is the RICO or racketeering claims all the way up to Donald Trump, that there was a common plan and scheme amongst these fake electors, um, among some of the other schemes that Donald Trump was engaged in, where these fake electors put their names on electoral certifications saying that Donald Trump won Georgia when Donald Trump lost the state of Georgia. Um, and what the fake electors are saying is, no, this was just a backup plan if Trump prevailed uh, on his various lawsuits. The issue is, is that Trump lost all of those lawsuits, yet they kept their names affixed to the fraudulent electoral certificates through the January 6th insurrection, hoping that the insurrection was going to be successful. If their defense was that they were just a backup plan, when Donald Trump uh, lost the cases, they should have revoked their names immediately. Um, but to me, this headline that's being reported that there are eight cooperating people seems to be a little hyperbolic in what the filing is, because this is really a filing of that lawyer calling out Fawny Willis, saying your motion was inaccurate trying to disqualify me, the lawyer, because we already have eight of the individuals who took immunity deals. So it's kind of a he said, she said, she said, she said kind of situation. Um, but as we learn more information, of course, we'll report. But um, it still is a significant development that you would have eight fake electors getting immunity deals who are testifying. They may not think what they did is criminal, but, you know, the MAGA Republicans look at the insurrection and start singing songs with the insurrectionists, so I'm not sure their legal, ethical, and moral compass is directly pointing in the right direction here. Yeah, they frame it as courage in defense of the Constitution, so that's their perspective. But here's what's not hyperbolic, is these convictions of the Proud Boys. Uh, Four leaders of the Proud Boys were convicted of seditious conspiracy yesterday by a jury. That brings it up to, like I said, 14 convictions of that offense in the DOJ's J6 cases. Ten have been by juries, four by guilty pleas. Extremely, extremely significant, like I said in the open, especially, I think, for Enrique Tarrio, because he was not actually physically present at the Capitol on January 6th. And, of course, our number one treasoner-in-chief, Donald Trump was not present, but he, we know he was the ringleader and the reason that any of this existed, that any of these attempts to overthrow our democracy happened on January 6th. So I really see this as a, as a um, legal, um, laying the legal groundwork for the charges to be brought against Donald Trump. I have been impatient with probably many of our luminaries. Um, over the past two years that charges have not been brought sooner, but I think it is hard to look at this trajectory and not see that charges are coming and not be grateful for this 
groundwork being laid through these previous convictions of the, the, the actors lower down on the totem pole leading up to a possible prosecution um, needed, let's not even say possible, possible, let's just say impending prosecution of Donald Trump. Can we play that, that brief clip from Merrick Garland yesterday? And now, after three trials, we have secured the convictions of leaders of both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers for seditious conspiracy, specifically conspiring to oppose by force the lawful transfer of presidential power. Our work will continue. Right on. So what do you think, Ben? I, I want to hear your opinion on where yeah. we stand with Merrick Garland and Jack Smith and what this, like what this conviction of these Proud Boys means. Well, think about what the defense was of the Proud Boys and the various Oath Keeper trials. What was their main defense? It was Donald Trump. Donald Trump sent me here. <laughs> we were following the orders of Donald Trump and the Department of Justice is now prosecuting us instead of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump should be the real criminal defendant here. Mm -hmm. That was most of the closing arguments that we heard <laughs> in all of